we'll start with Hamid Nazar, uh, whose writings uh, are bordering on prolific, and he's an advisor to the embassy of Saudi Arabia, but his views are his own. And then we, he's going to put it in a more globalistic context. And then we go to the Library of Congress, Congress, big player here. Uh, look at the influence of Senator Corker, or the, uh, even the influence of uh, Senator Flake. Uh, and these are leading, of course, but they have influence and they're in the media a lot, as are others, McCain, you name it, uh, Schumer, uh, Grassley, the, the list is a long one. Uh, even the one who, the funny man, who's resigned because what he did was not funny at all uh, there. So we have Christopher Blanchard. Um, he's come through all of us uh, innumerable times. Uh, so this perspective coming from Congress. He has access to the spooky material. We have 16 intelligence agencies, and he more than that. Anyone at the table, with the exception possibly of uh, David DeRose, the third speaker, uh, is at the National Defense University, uh, brings that kind of information, insight, knowledge, and understanding, and ability to analyze these matters critically there. And to wind up, we have another globalistic but institutional perspective coming from Nawaf Athari, who's at the United Nations, and comes at the issue of counterterrorism differently than individual uh, countries. Uh, please join me in welcoming Father Nazar. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Anthony, and thank you for uh, inviting me. It's always a pleasure to take part in uh, the Council's many important events and panels, and obviously today is no exception. I do want to preface my remarks by stressing that uh, the views I express here today are strictly my own. I don't speak on behalf of the Saudi Embassy or the Saudi government in any way. So uh, as Dr. Anthony mentioned, uh, I'd like to focus my remarks on, on the broader picture, uh, provide a status update on where the international community's effort to counter um, extremists and radicals uh, stand, and uh, to look at the lessons learned over the past few years. Now, as a starting point, I think it will probably not come as a surprise to anyone in this room uh, that I do use September 11, 2001 as a starting point. I think that was a seminal event. Um, in the history of, uh, of this effort, obviously not just for the United States, but also for the broader international community. I think that that day forced many of us to uh, reassess uh, our assumptions about national security, about uh, international relations. Um, I, I, I was in Washington, D.C. on that day, and I recall around that time, much of us had uh, begun believing the theory, the compelling one at that point, that Maybe we had come to the end of history, as uh, was put uh, by a prominent. Uh, uh, sorry, you can go a little closer. That'd be great. And uh, as as we found out on that day, obviously history had not ended, uh, but rather a, a new chapter, uh, foreboding and, and uh, frightening chapter was uh, was uh, up ahead. So um, I do want to look at what exactly what has happened 
in the past 17 years. Uh, we'll look at three main uh, broad lessons that, uh, that I think we, we can draw from the international community's effort. And the first one is the fact that the uh, global, I mean, the uh, terrorist effort is uh, global in nature and it requires uh, global solutions. Uh, unilateral measures are obviously also important. Every country has to look at its own internal dynamics and take measures to make sure that its national security is protected. But ultimately, um, the international community has to, uh, the countries have to cooperate, and they have cooperated on many different fronts. And their cooperation has been effective. It has been effective in cutting the financing of uh, terrorist operations and terrorist groups. It has uh, been effective in preventing terrorist uh, uh, personnel and people from moving from uh, one country to another. And it has also been um, important and effective in preventing uh, terrorists from communicating with each other. I think all of these uh, components are important. Um, and there are two countries that I think do stand out in this global effort, and I, I think that those two countries are Saudi Arabia and the United States. The United States is obviously leading a military uh, effort in both uh, Iraq and Syria, and uh, especially over the past year, played a central role in essentially coming very close to defeating uh, the so-called Islamic State and its strongholds in both uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, Saudi Arabia, likewise, has now established uh, a coalition of Muslim states to also um, find uh, multilateral solutions to, uh, towards confronting the, uh, the threat that specifically impacts uh, Muslim-majority countries. Saudi Arabia also think plays a central role and leading role in countering the extremist narrative of uh, the narrative propagated by extremists as the birthplace of uh, Islam and the location of its two holiest sites. I think Saudi Arabia is in a is in a unique position to counter and to discredit the narrative that is being propagated by extremist groups on religious grounds, and I think it has done uh, that. Uh, for many years, really, and it has created a number of institutions. Uh, some of its most senior religious clerics have consistently condemned um, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and condemned them again on religious terms. Uh, and they, they've done this in various forms and have also been doing it online. Um, this brings me to, to my second point, or the second lesson uh, learned, which is that um, how you frame the narrative is, is very important. So. There's a correct way of framing the narrative, and there's a wrong way. I think the correct way is to make it clear that this is a, a, an effort or a war that has been waged by a, a small, radical minority against the international community overall. It is not strictly a war um, against the West. It is not strictly a war against uh, the Muslim world. It is a, a war against anybody who does not subscribe to the uh, deviant ideology of uh, Daesh, um, Al-Qaeda, and other groups. Um, <coughs> I think that when President Trump spoke in Riyadh uh, a few months ago, he actually struck the right note and, uh, by emphasizing that, indeed, this was not a clash of civilization of some sort, but that this was uh, a war that has been waged by uh, a small minority of radicalized uh, militants and terrorists against the international community and against specifically the Muslim world and it is incumbent on uh, Muslim majority uh, countries to um, to do everything they can to root them out and drive them out as, they, as he said and that message is, I think was uh, received very well 
uh, in Saudi Arabia, in the GCC, and in the broader uh, Muslim world. I think that those who do try to frame this conflict as a clash of civilization actually do a great disservice uh, to the effort. In uh, many respects, I think they do uh, a great, an invaluable service to terrorist groups. I think it helps uh, their recruitment efforts by essentially repeating and echoing their uh, own narrative, which does say that there is a clash of civilization between Muslims and other civilizations. Um, when it comes specifically to religious debates, I think we have to be very careful in terms of who uh, we listen to. I think we need authoritative voices. Uh, the mere fact that somebody has a website and a YouTube uh, account does not qualify them to speak about what is and what is not uh, consistent with the tenets of Islam. I think we uh, uh, that debate, frankly, has to primarily come from within the Muslim world, but not just the, the Muslim world, but from within the scholarly community of Muslims. These are the people with, who can speak about this authoritatively more than anyone else. Um, third lesson, and uh, I'll end on a positive note here, is that I think the past 17 years or so suggests to us that uh, terrorists cannot win. Um, they have tried. We have seen many various groups, and they simply have not, nothing to offer. They have very little support uh, domestically in every country. They have uh, reared their um, ugly face, frankly. They have failed in garnering much support among the local community. They obviously don't have support internationally. They are facing, facing and confr confronting the entire international community. Um, they, as, as, as said at the outset, they are at war against um, all of humanity, really, with no exceptions. Um, and that has led to uh, defeat after defeat. I think 2017 was, was a key year in this uh, effort, as we see Daesh, arguably the most brutal of all the terrorist groups um, in recent memory. It lost most, if not all, of its territory in both uh, Iraq and Syria, and I think uh, there's a good reason for that. Uh, the Washington Institute for um, Near East policy conducted a number of polls over the past couple of years to actually gauge the level of support for uh, Daesh. Specifically, they uh, conducted interviews in Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, I believe Egypt, and some other GCC countries, and found that the support is uh, in the single digits, in certain cases less than 1%. This does not uh, come as a surprise to me. Um, I think that it has become very clear uh, to me and others who have uh, looked at this uh, issue closely over the years that the uh, narrative that is advanced, the interpretation of Islam that is advanced by these groups contradicts how Muslims uh, the world over interpret and, and practice uh, Islam and that I think goes to uh, explain to a large extent why they have failed repeatedly to, uh, to garner much, uh, much support. So um, last thing, uh, that doesn't mean that this war is over. I think there will be challenges ahead. I think terrorist groups will continue to prey on vulnerable people, people who feel alienated, people who feel aggrieved uh, for whatever reason, and they will continue to do that uh, both in the Muslim world, Islamic world, and in the West. So I think there will be challenges up ahead. Uh, but overall, I think the international community has turned a corner in 2017, and uh, I look for more of the same in 2019. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Fahad. And, uh also for staying within the time limits. Uh, we just want to get some points, some ideas, some analyses out here on the table and see where you're coming from, uh, either with counter uh, analyses or 
important questions, um, these two things. Uh, so well, each of the speakers is tasked with this, and uh, they're professionals, and they will fulfill those tasks. Yes, next, uh, Christopher Blanchard. Michelle Jones. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Anthony and the council uh, for inviting me uh, to participate today and having me back. Uh, always enjoy these events and the conversations uh, at them and then afterwards. My remarks and contributions this morning, as always, do not reflect the official views of the Library of Congress or the Congressional Research Service. I will, however, be using quotations at times to identify views that have been uh, directly expressed by U.S. government officials and reports, and I'll be clear about when that's the case just in terms of attribution. Uh, and so when considering what I could uh, usefully uh, properly offer on short notice in lieu uh, of a uh, former IC counterterrorism practitioner, uh, quite senior to me, um, the council and I uh, agreed that the sort of analytical framing that we often do at the Congressional Research Service to sort of set the table and give um, our practitioners, our clients, tools and a structure to understand the complex problem set be equally useful here. Um, so that's what I'll endeavor to do today. Um, and with that in mind, I'd like to explore three uh, particular questions, just briefly as a means of contributing and, and prompting further discussion. Uh, those questions are, first, where do we find ourselves right now uh, in the campaign against global terrorist groups um, at the start of 2018? Uh, where has the journey since 20, uh, uh, 2001 led us? Secondly, how do the Trump administration and the U.S. national security bureaucracy currently define the threat and the current counterterrorism approach in their own words uh, and on their own terms? And then lastly, what do these conditions and approaches suggest about future counterterrorism policy agenda uh, broadly and in terms particularly uh, for the interest of this audience in terms of bilateral cooperation between the United States and its Arab partners? So first, where are we? Um, as uh, you can plainly read in the newspaper, uh, but I can attest that um, U.S. government assessments, both public and, and private uh, support, um, we have made some considerable progress uh, in our fight against uh, what you could categorize as uh, the, the three principal trans-regional or uh, global reach terrorist actors, uh, the Islamic State, Daesh, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, and uh, the Hezbollah network, and a affiliated uh, Shiite militia, although progress is, is variable along those three lines. Um, the Islamic State uh, is assessed to have fewer than 3,000 remaining fighters uh, uh, in the Iraq and Syria theater, uh, although an unknown supporter, uh, number of supporters outside. Um, estimates vary among the different affiliate groups, and what we see both with the Islamic State and with Al-Qaeda is a continuing approach uh, of trying to graft themselves onto localized insurgencies, um, thereby, uh, you know, uh, transferring their expertise and knowledge, but also muddying the waters uh, in terms of uh, the agendas of those groups, the affiliates, beliefs, and practices of their individual cadres. Um, the, uh, the Syria and Iraq theater uh, is not finished, is not over by any means, uh, and that's both with regard to the counterterrorism operations uh, and with regard to the broader conflicts, I think. And I'll say more about that uh, toward the end. Um, but Iraqi officials did proclaim victory in their military uh, in their military campaign in December, but obviously remain engaged in operations. And in Syria, uh, the picture is a, a little more challenging. Um, you have concentrations of Daesh fighters uh, along the Iraqi-Syria border, but also 
uh, spread throughout the middle Euphrates River Valley, uh, and those are going to remain a focus, particularly in 2018, not just of the United States and its Arab, uh, and Kurdish partners, um, uh, but others engaged in the region. Um, on the Al Qaeda front, um, you know, this is a, after a decade and a half, uh, the threat remains diverse and, and formidable. Uh, senior Al Qaeda figures are, are reported to remain in Pakistan, uh, but the network continues to, uh, to feature a number of affiliates. Um, principally among them, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, based in Yemen, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, uh, across the greater Sahel region, and Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Uh, their small Al-Qaeda, but potentially growing presence uh, in Afghanistan is certainly of concern, um, and we'd be remiss not to focus uh, on the complex relationship between local insurgent actors in northwestern Syria and the Hayat Tahrir al-Sham network, um, which does continue to uh, have ties um, individual ties um, uh, to Al-Qaeda leadership. Again, as I said, we see Al-Qaeda seeking to exploit those local uh, and regional insurgencies for its own benefit. And we continue to see a distinction between the strategic communications approach uh, um, of Al-Qaeda, uh, arguing that its forces should not take the uh, territorial administration approach that we saw Daesh take in Syria and Iraq, but rather should engage in the sort of tried and true um, guerrilla and uh, attrition approach uh, that we've seen Al-Qaeda affiliates take over time. Um, and I'll say less about the Hezbollah network, although I think it's plainly evident that uh, the same uh, experience uh, and um, uh, the same uh, sort of uh, crucible that Islamic State and Al-Qaeda fighters went through, uh, particularly in Syria, that Hezbollah has gone through as well. Uh, that's both a positive and negative. Uh, and we've seen, obviously, the Iranians uh, develop uh, a whole panoply of militia actors. And here they are now. Shake this roll. Yeah. That would be much more entertaining. I'm busy. So pivoting, how does the Trump administration uh, define the threat? Uh, and I'm not going to do a, a Twitter recap here, uh, but I'm going to go to sort of the drier primary sources, um, particularly uh, the recently released national security strategy. Uh, and there the administration describes uh, a quote, a long war, end quote, against a persistent, ideologically motivated, quote, fanatic, end quote, adaptive enemy. Uh, and it's one that the United States, according to the strategy, seeks to, quote, defeat and, quote, destroy, quote, wherever they are, end quote, through direct action, initiatives to eliminate safe havens, end quote, sources of strength. We'll say a bit more about that. Uh, and through partnership with local actors, uh, very important from a congressional angle. The strategy concludes that while having suffered losses, the United States and its partners face jihadist terrorist adversaries that, quote, maintain global reach, end quote, and the threats they pose, quote, will persist. In October and December, um, we saw, uh, I think, very useful public commentary uh, from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, uh, as well as the Special Envoy to the Global Coalition, uh, Brett McGurk, that described this campaign uh, as ongoing against, uh, quote, a trans-regional threat, end quote. Um, but they did assess that this was at an inflection point. Uh, maybe not uh, a victory point, uh, maybe not um, the end of the story, but certainly an inflection point where it would shift from one focused on an intense military campaign, primarily in the Iraq and Syria theater, 
to one that's more focused on the distributed nodes of these uh, terrorist networks uh, in other places, um, and a more intense focus on stabilization, reconstruction, and diplomacy in areas where military victory, uh, such as it is, has been achieved. Um, the, their commentary uh, assessed the uh, networks as, again, seriously degraded, uh, degraded uh, particularly in terms of flows of their personnel, the availability of resources, and the production of their media, all being at low points. Um, uh, they did, however, assess that these groups learned a lot on the battlefield, uh, and they seek to distribute that knowledge through not a wholesale outflow of these foreign fighters that came to the Iraq Syria theater, but more through uh, the distribution of expert leadership cadres uh, to uh, some of these distributed conflict zones. Um, and this is where uh, I think you're going to see uh, more focus and commentary, particularly from the U.S. and its coalition partners. Um, these, uh, are the, uh, um, these are the overlays with the sources of strength that were mentioned in the, the national security strategy. These flows of foreign fighters, uh, finances and resources, uh, but also the, the narrative and the messaging. So there are two short-term priorities that are being identified right now. This is cutting the connective tissue, uh, and, that, and that's a quote, uh, between these groups, and degrading these, what they describe specifically as, quote, enabling functions. Uh, and then the second aspect, the second focus, uh, is uh, enabling local forces to deal with these challenges. And to do that, uh, we're seeing direct action, we're seeing uh, a lot of enhanced intelligence sharing, and we're seeing renewed efforts uh, and, and expanding efforts to build the partnership capacity uh, of local partners from the United States perspective. Um, however, uh, and, and this is, uh, I think, points to a, a particularly uh, con uh, challenging contextual uh, issue that we need to put on the table and address. Um, the ability to sustain and maintain military victories and counterterrorism victories is ultimately tied up with these more complex questions of stabilization, effective and legitimate governance, the development of capable and responsibly managed and deployed security forces. Some of you have heard me talk about that. Uh, in the context of our uh, military cooperation discussions. Um, and you hear it directly from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, and senior coalition leadership. So what lies ahead? Uh, again, as I said, uh, while significant military progress has been made, uh, senior US officials are careful to underscore that not, uh, the fight against enemies is not over. Um, and I like to think of this in terms of stories. Uh, and there are several stories that need that aren't done being told, right? Um, first, we have the stories not only of the individuals who came to fight um, the, uh, uh, in the battlefield, so that's 40,000 foreign fighters whose stories need to be fully unraveled, some of whom are dead, maybe not buried, um, but many of whom are still out there. Um, but also, the millions of displaced, disadvantaged, and disrupted lives uh, in these theaters that need to be addressed and need to be um, made whole, or at least closer to whole in order to set a context where military success can be um, uh, achieved. So uh, looking ahead, will Syrians find a, a political resolution uh, or take closer steps in 2018? Will Iraq's 2018 elections produce a government that uh, regional partners in the United States can continue to partner with? Um, uh, what about Libya, Yemen, the Horn of Africa? Um, I think we have less cause for uh, optimism uh, on these broader stabilization and political questions maybe than we do on the military and counterterrorism front. And just in closing, um, to hammer home the sort of enduring nature of these challenges and questions, I just wanted to draw your attention to what I consider another important U.S. strategy document, 
um, and I'll quote here, it'll, it'll sound quite familiar to what I've just said. Our priority will be to first disrupt and destroy terrorist organizations of global reach and attack their leadership, command and control, communications, material support, and finances. We will continue to engage our regional partners to take up a coordinated fight that isolates terrorists. And once the regional campaign localizes the threat to a particular state, we will help ensure the state has military, law enforcement, political, and financial tools to finish the task. That's from the 2002 U.S. National Security Strategy. So 15 years passed. I think we have uh, an agenda that suggests we need to look over the course of that 15 years, learn lessons, as Fahad uh, implied, uh, and look forward with renewed energy and shared commitment uh, to face the challenges ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. That was terrific. Dave Roche. Just killed my slides. Thank you. Well, Christopher, you uh, set me up wonderfully because the title of my topic is Continuity or Change, and you pointed out continuity. Uh, I am oblig obligated by federal law to point out that my uh, views are my own and do not represent the uh, Department of Defense or National Defense University. Uh, however, my tie solely reflects my own sense of style. In fact. Um, I'm also, as a, uh, as a, um, a war college professor, obliged to uh, mention Karl von Clausewitz in almost every one of my public remarks. And so I will, yes, it, it, it is law now, thank you. Um, and so I will. The beauty of Clausewitz is that he can be upgraded uh, and applied to the times. And there currently is an important uh, resurgence of Clausewitz among the people who man the defense and security infrastructure. This is because in the 1980s, two events happened. First, Peter Parrott's influential translation of On War was released in 1984. And then, one of the formulative apologetics of the Vietnam War, Colonel Harry Summers's book on strategy, was released. And this became uh, one of the guiding intellectual documents in the 1980s and for the revival of the US military and national security infrastructure moving forward. The point from Clausewitz that Harry Summers took, which continues to guide us, is a simplification of Clausewitz's trilogy, which says that um, in war you have, Clausewitz himself talks about the factors that affect the three points of the triangle. So if you speak German, please don't yell at me, but I, I get it. But basically you have government, army, and people. And the interaction of those three is what determines war. Um, this is a particularly useful uh, formulation if you're trying to explain insurgency, counterinsurgency, limited war, and terrorist movements. You can explain the rise of ISIS by the failure of government in the Sunni-controlled regions of Iraq, where I would argue that the Iraqi government following the U.S. withdrawal was virtually indistinguishable from the Shia Adawa party the army which was hollowed out, and of course the people who became hostile. Similarly, when we look at the Trump administration's approach, I would argue that what you see is the government, first off the army or the armed forces, remain mostly unchanged and indeed are indistinguishable from the same structure we had, not just in the Obama administration, but even in the George W. Bush administration. The government remains remarkably similar as well, and that's because both a large number of positions are not filled, but also because, quite frankly, the uh, means the government has and is willing to employ are not there. Why are those means limited? It's because of the third vertice, the people. 
Quite frankly, the American people have decided that, yes, we'd like to see ISIS defeated, but we don't want to have a large number of U.S. forces on the ground. We don't want to have uh, see the humiliation of American journalists or soldiers being executed by ISIS on TV. And we don't want to give a blank check to what we see as, as an Iraqi government that in, the, or that in the past has been feckless, that has squandered the infrastructure that we gave them prior to leaving in 2002. And so given that the the, the role of the people, the American people, defines such a limited range of actions for the government and the army to execute in ISIS. I think that that would point to an increase in continuity rather than change. Now, Ronald Reagan's probably most lasting quote for uh, those who would work in government is, personnel is policy. Personnel is policy. And I think that uh, you know when historians look at the legacy of Reagan, they'll say, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall. But for political scientists, personnel is policy. So let's take a look at personnel. This is Rob Malley's Twitter uh, page. And the picture he's chosen to choose shows President Barack Obama in the middle. This is taken in the Oval Office. And on the far right is Rob Malley. Rob Malley is a son of one of the founding uh, members of the Egyptian Communist Party. Uh, he is a distinguished Middle East scholar. He was the National Security Council Middle East Director uh, under President Obama. He's currently at the International Crisis Group. It would be very, very hard to find a Middle East expert who is more closely aligned with the Democratic Party than is Rob Malley. Now, the other people in the picture, Brett McGurk, already mentioned by our previous speaker, who is currently the Special Envoy for Countering ISIS, standing next to Barack Obama. He occupies the same position today, and his deputy, Terry Wolf, who is his deputy today. So given that amount of personnel continuity, and given the fact that many of the other positions in the national security furniture have not been filled, so civilian or career civil servants step up and fill the gap, is there any wonder just from a personnel standpoint, that we don't see a whole lot of difference in policy. And I would argue that in the US government, wicked problems tend to have common solutions because our range of options are limited. So what you might see are tactical and operational shifts based due on circumstances, situations on the ground, but big strategic mind shifts and big strategic approaches are extremely rare. Things like Franklin D. Roosevelt with the New Deal, where he created an entirely new federal infrastructure. You see those once in two or three generations. So what is this structure that the coalition is working through to counter ISIS and Al-Qaeda and CVE, primarily Islamist CVE? Well, this framework, again, was put in place under the Obama administration. You have uh, four working groups that are coalition working groups, total of 68 countries focusing on foreign terrorist fighters, counterfinance, stabilization support, that means reconstruction and uh, preventing failed states, and communications. And you can see that the partners in this group, Italy, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, um, Bahrain, these are multinational organizations, and the United States is not in the lead in every one of these. Now, I think that any objective observer would say, this is the way to go, and indeed, the strategy is good, and what can we expect from an Obama, or, I'm sorry, from a Trump administration with limited personnel and 
with a domestic focus is you can expect tactical adjustments, you can expect incremental improvements, you can expect changes based on changing circumstances, but the overall strategic thrust, I would argue, is constant. What has that gotten us? Well, uh, Chris has spoken about the decline of Daesh. This is the most recent State Department map. Everything that is green and red was once controlled by Daesh. I guess they use green and red because this was produced by State over Christmas. Uh, light green is stuff that was taken back in the first year military operations, dark green in the second year. Red is assessed to still be under Daesh control. And what you can see, as um, Fad and Chris have noted, is that as a military force, uh, Daesh is teetering on the verge of irrelevancy. So where do they go? Well, what we're seeing is that, unfortunately, uh, as often seems to be the case with the United States, it looks as though we may win the war but lose the peace. We, having provided the bulk of the military effort to defeat Daesh in Syria, have seen the Syrian regime with its Iranian army of proxies, Hezbollah, and uh, Russian special operations support and air power seize terrain in order to hold it for Hafez al-Assad. In Iraq, uh, we have built a truly national security force which was decimated uh, in the fighting for Mosul, and we've seen uh, Hashta Shabi, uh, many of which are allied or under the control of the Iranian government or Iranian agents of influence, move in and not only take a large uh, part in that, but have been incorporated in the, into the Iraqi government infrastructure. Some of these people will be paid pensions uh, by the Iraqi government, even though they have been outside of the control of the Iraqi government and may have even defied the Iraqi government. Uh, so that will be a challenge for us. Um, ISIS having been defeated, uh, has moved from a military organization constituted on the ground to an organization that is dampened, but it's diffuse, decentralized, disorganized, and draws from the disaffected. This picture is from the ISIS magazine Inspire. It was published in the spring, and it basically gives you guidance for selecting a vehicle and a location to ram the vehicle into people. So this was published around the world before the London Bridge attack, before the New York bike trail attack. Um, and what you're seeing is a shift from a constituted military force on the ground that can be bombed, that you can apply artillery to, to a diffuse, disorganized, and undirected, and thus harder to find organization, which cannot be countered with conventional military means, has to be dealt with as a law enforcement uh, problem or as a sociological problem uh, through the whole of government. And what that means is that uh, two, there's two implications. The first one is it is much, much harder to counter this, particularly in the Western democracies where there are limits on surveillance and limits on a police state. Um, Basically, the historical analogy is that this is the equivalent of the anarchist movement at the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century movement. People forget, but anarchists killed several European kings and one American president, and they did it without an organized command and control structure, without an organized financing network, without directions and control. They struck at the heart of several advanced states at the end of the 19th century, and that's what we're looking at. Secondly, fragile states, uh, which have um, either um, 
uh, I'm sorry, in Western states which have unassimilated minorities or large groups of disaffected people to whom the idea of a comprehensive mental structure promising redemption are at risk. We're referring to uh, the uh, still unassimilated uh, Maghrebi population in France. Um, Andrew Hussey's book, The French Jihad, uh, is quite notable, I think, in showing the comprehensive failure of the French government to, to uh, integrate uh, its people. And assimilation becomes an interest. Um, the first speaker made reference to the clash of civilizations uh, and the end of history. Um, uh, Samuel Huntington's work on that was, you know, Francis Fukuyama and the History of Samuel Huntington, Class of Civilization. Samuel Huntington's last book, Who Are We?, which talks about assimilation, uh, was dismissed at the time. Uh, but I think it bears revisiting because assimilation is going to be a challenge. The second challenge faced with modern Daesh uh, and Al Qaeda is to fragile states in the Islamic world or the Muslim world, particularly states like Tunisia and states like Egypt, which have. Uh, uh, non-deep-seated sense of democracy or the pretense of democracy which have security institutions which are either uh, nascent, vulnerable, or flawed in their relations with the civilian population which are facing large populations of ideologically motivated returning fighters and limited government resources to do that. So, the problem remains the same but I would argue that the methods, the strategy, and the means that uh, the West will use to um, combat it are rather the same. And the reason why is because this is a generation-long problem. And the problem and the solutions we employ to solve the problem will outlast any administration. And with that in mind, this is my contact information, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, sir. marked the beginning of a new chapter in U.S.-Arab defense and security collaborations. This was highlighted by President Trump's historic visit to Riyadh and an unprecedented Arab-Islamic summit. Uh, Muslim leaders gathered with His Highness King Salman and President Trump in a joint summit aimed at fostering uh, an international commitment uh, to eradicating terrorism and uh, violent extremism and rooting out the funders of such networks. Uh, to an audience of Muslim leaders, President Trump stated, quote, America is committed to adjusting our strategies to meet evolving threats and new facts. We will discard those strategies that have not worked and will apply new approaches informed by experience and judgment. This statement acknowledges the emergence of new terrorist threats and, 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 and which require updated counterterrorism strategies and innovative long-term solutions. Since taking office, President Trump has deepened ties to several allies in the Middle East that are vital counterterrorism partners, such as the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. 
the Trump administration realizes that supporting strategic and historic allies who are committed to eradicating this global threat is the prudent approach to take. One of the most important steps taken by the Trump administration in this regard was the public and official condemnation of Iran as the largest state sponsor of terrorism, an acknowledgement of the disruptive and devastating role it plays in the region. From Syria to Iraq to Yemen, the common denominator has been Iraq's expansionist policies. From a Saudi point of view, I believe the White House now views the Iranian regime for what it truly is. This past October, the U.S. State Department approved the sale of an anti-missile defense system to the kingdom. The Pentagon's Defense Security Cooperation Agency said in a statement, quote, the sale furthers U.S. national security and foreign policy interests and supports the long-term security of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf region in the face of Iranian and other regional threats. Providing military sales to the kingdom sustains manufacturing jobs in America and the kingdom and promotes American defense technology abroad. This will strengthen the industrial base in the U.S., foster closer relations between the two nations, um, and protect U.S. and Saudi commercial and security interests in the region. This also reflects the current administration's commitment to domestic job creation and industry growth while strengthening allies in the face of terrorist threats. President Trump has also taken a different leadership approach by granting greater latitude to his military commanders and allowing for a more relaxed uh, application of rules of engagement when it comes to the use of force. This and other factors have allowed the U.S. and its allies to maintain a slow but successful military campaign against the Daesh uh, forces in Iraq and Syria. Uh, the administration has also increased troops on the ground, nearly doubling the number of previous forces in the fight for Raqqa. Uh, in addition, the global coalition uh, the U.S. has maintained over the years to fight ISIS seems stronger than ever, with the recent gains attributable to a truly collaborative international effort. Operation Heron Resolve broke the group's three-year three stranglehold uh, in, on Mosul and also liberated the group's self-proclaimed capital in Raqqa. Uh, the Kingdom and Iraq have partnered uh, over this past year under the common cause of countering the Iranian threat. Secretary Tillerson participated in the inaugural meeting of the Saudi Arabian-Iraq Coordination Committee, uh, along with King Salman and Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, uh, and told leaders that the event highlighted the improving ties between the two nations and showed great potential for further cooperation. This shows a strategic push by the administration to support efforts aimed at strengthening ties between Arab nations uh, in the face of uh, Iranian expansionist policies. Since then, the Saudi-Iraqi borders have reopened, uh, relations are warming, uh, and this has allowed for, for dialogue amongst different sects and religious factions, reinforcing unity against Iran and disproving the notion that the conflict is one of a sectarian nature. Uh, rather, it is very much a conflict between an agenda of peaceful tolerance and brotherly relations and an agenda of violence and terror propagated by the regime in Tehran. Uh, the Iraqi Prime Minister Abadi said, quote, we want to move away from the past, the region cannot tolerate any further div divisions. Interference in the internal affairs of others should stop. The administration has also taken on the role of informer to those in the international community who remain skeptical. Last month, Ambassador Nikki Haley held a press briefing at an American military base where she presented indisputable evidence <laughs> of Iran's UN resolution violating actions in the Middle East. These materials were presented were, uh, the materials presented were a clear violation of the UN Security Council Resolution 2231, which among other provisions 
prohibits Iran from progressing its ballistic missile program um, and bans Iran from weapons transfers. These missiles were provided by Iran to Houthi rebels who proceeded to launch them unsuccessfully into the kingdom's borders. Ambassador Haley said the U.S. would invite every member of Congress to view the debris, as well as every member of the U.N. Security Council. One of her goals at the U.N. is to build a coalition aimed at placing increased pressure on Iran. Ambassador Haley said, quote, what I've seen from our foreign partners is that now they actually see that the president was right. Now they see that, yes, there are problems, close quote. The administration has employed a highly collaborative and international approach towards combating terror, and yet several key challenges remain to be addressed. These include eliminating terrorist havens and terror financing, assisting vulnerable regions through capacity building, Though one of the main challenges, uh, in my opinion, in the 21st century battle against terror is that of managing and mitigating the cyber and technological threat. It is only through winning the technological battle that we can end the cycles of recruitment and preventing terrorists from wide, limitless access to human resources. The Trump administration has the capacity to push Silicon Valley tech companies towards implementing certain regulatory mechanisms to efficiently monitor and prevent terrorist recruitment and operations. Terrorists will use the technology of the time, and as the technology grows, so will they. Also, the U.S. can take advantage of terrorist social media output and use their digital footprints for tracking. Such efforts are key to identifying and preventing lone wolf attackers whose only indication of an impending attack might be a, a tweet or a Facebook post. Uh, in addition, the administration can push tech companies to adequately enforce their terms of service and make the internet a restrictive, dangerous place for violent extremists. We have the technological capabilities to do this. Uh, the emergence of blockchain technology and artificial intelligence uh, present unique opportunities in the field of combating terror finance and, and violent extremism online. That being said, several key initiatives have been launched in recent years to address uh, this digital battle. Uh, this past year marked the launch of the Global Anti-Extremism Center at Tidal, uh, in Riyadh, a world-class center to fight online terrorist narratives. Similar initiatives such as uh, Sawab and Hidayah in the UAE aim to accomplish the same thing. The United States, groups like Counter-Extremism Counter Project have done excellent work in this space, utilizing innovative tech solutions such as the eGlyph software and taking down extremist content from the web. Silicon Valley has been dragging their feet a little bit when it comes to innovating internal solutions to the problems that plague their platforms. This presents a unique opportunity for governments around the world to push this innovation and make it a priority in their goals for the future. Precisely this, ladies and gentlemen, is happening slowly but surely. This past June, Facebook, Microsoft, YouTube, and Twitter jointly launched the Global Internet Forum to counter terrorism. And during this past General Assembly, I was honored to represent the Kingdom at a high-level event hosted by the Prime Ministers of the UK and Italy, as well as the President of France, along with senior leadership from Google. This event was titled Preventing Terrorist Use of the Internet, and was a welcome first step Keyword first, keywords first step in an effort by world leaders to push the tech world to respond. The push by the government of the UK to launch this initiative is another excellent step which can serve as a global template for similar initiatives. Allow me to conclude by stating that there is a clear alignment of vision and strategy between His Highness King Salman, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and President Trump it, when it pertains to the security of our two nations and the stability of the region.
arms deals, robust military collaborations in the form of training, knowledge sharing, counter-terror co coalitions, and intelligence cooperation all serve to illustrate this fact. With increasing U.S. support and the Kingdom's leadership through initiatives such as the Islamic Military Counter-Terror Coalition, uniting the Muslim and Arab world together against the scourge of terror and extremism can only lead to positive results for the region and the world at large. Thank you all. Uh, Daesh 
media and recruitment materials won't necessarily perceive um, this recent policy shift or decision as um, likely to create a whole cloth change in their condemnation of either the United States or the Saudi Arabian government or the government of Egypt or any other. Um, I'm not sure this changed their opinion uh, of us, which was uh, fairly negative. Um, that said, um, just in terms of recent observation, um, is this not uh, that said, you know, in terms of recent observation, uh, the Daesh affiliate in Sinai uh, made note of the decision in its most recent missive, um, which was surprisingly hostile to certain Palestinian actors, particularly Hamas. Um, so it's, it's certainly become, it, it has been integrated into this broader narrative, um, but from what I've seen, I, I don't think necessarily that, as I said, uh, foundationally this is a game changer in terms of their opinion or what they have to say about the United States and its partners in the region. So um, I actually agree with both Nawab and, and Chris. So I agree with Nawab in the sense that the decision is not likely to um, to help uh, matters, but I don't know that it will, I also am not sure that it would necessarily harm cooperation specifically between the United States or, and Saudi Arabia, but between the United States and most of its partners in the region. I think that there's uh, a commitment, a demonstrated commitment, an understanding that this is uh, a global threat uh, that certainly uh, most countries in the region and in the Islamic world have uh, have faced. They've paid a very heavy price in terms of casualties and they, ne they do need to cooperate with the United States and other countries. Um, so, so I'm not sure that it would adversely impact cooperation on that front, but I also agree with Chris. I think that terrorist groups have always paid lip service uh, to the Palestinian issue. Uh, I don't think uh, their, their actions, their rhetoric, their narrative will shift mu much uh, at all. Uh, they will use it for their uh, political ends to, to advance their narrative, whether the United States does or does not actually do anything about the, uh, the embassy. Uh, if I can add something to what's been said, uh, for all of our talk about uh, we work best and look most for uh, with uh, countries that adhere to respect international law. Uh, uh, this is would be clearly a violation of international law. Uh, I don't see a gray zone here. Uh, in the enabling uh, United Nations Secure, uh, General Assembly uh, resolution that people make reference to as the founding uh, platform upon which uh, the Jewish state was founded, uh, they took note uh, of the enormous, immense, persuasive emotionality uh, laced with uh, religious beliefs since time immemorial regarding Jerusalem. And so it was referred to as a corpus separatum. Uh, and so this is being violated right there. Uh, secondly, uh, in the uh, United Nations Charter is the um, clear phrase about the inadmissibility 
of the acquisition of territory by force. And thirdly, in UN uh, Resolutions 242 and 338, Israel has accepted uh, that principle, uh, as uh, did Egypt and the Camp David Accords, and uh, Jordan as well. So um, here are three frames of reference that um, are being violated here. Um, and the United States is largely isolated on this issue, understandably so, and alone abroad is on controversial issues. It's hardly where one uh, seeks to be. Um, another question has to do with despair and desperation, and uh, references by several uh, to the ongoing <coughs> objective, subjective, uh, demographic, economic, societal, even religious sect, in some cases, reasons for an um, inability to capture gainful employment and no prospect of that changing significantly in the future. Uh, but here's one question about American despair. Uh, a couple too, or as a result of uh, what we just said. And a question about um, what constitutes winning. And uh, if you cannot win, uh, does this not mean an accommodation to uh, ongoing uh, attitude of defeatism, uh, where some groups can inflict harm and then to be hurtful across the globe um, with the American people asking the question of how much longer do we take this, uh, how much more of this can we take, and what uh, realistic alternatives versus the political ones versus the rhetorical ones uh, might we provide serious and consideration to and that is not being done. Here, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll uh, channel uh, Chairman Dunford briefly here. Uh, his definition of, uh, quote, the end state. He says, the end state, this is a quote, the end state is actually getting to the point where security challenges in each of the respective countries or regions can be dealt with largely by local security forces with a minimal amount of international support. Right? So that is the current working U.S. definition of winning. Um, that's a tall order, right? Um, and I think the distribution of um, the distribution of those partnership approaches and partnership relationships with local partners in each of those theaters that I mentioned, uh, you know, be it Iraq, Syria. Um, we could spend two hours talking about the challenges of partnership there and the challenges of stabilization, uh, good governance, and peace, uh, and the humanitarian crisis. Uh, I think the same goes uh, in our partnership with the Saudi coalition in Yemen, um, or our various partners uh, and interlocutors in the Libya theater. Um, we have defined uh, what we think winning will look like from a U.S. perspective, and that is a minimization, I think you're right, uh, the question, premise of the question is right, uh, of U.S. effort and a sustainable amount uh, of partnership with local actors. Um, 
And that's sustainable, not just in a sense of financial or military expenditure, but politically credible, legitimate, uh, in keeping with uh, the principles that the United States is, is attempting to aspire around. Um, so yeah, I think we've defined it, uh, but it, it, it remains quite a tall order. Uh, Mr. Durush, you want to? Sure. Uh, that? Well, it's, it's going to be a generational thing, and I think it will require a shift. So what you're going to see is this idea that we can retreat behind two big um, oceans, and what happens overseas stays overseas. Uh, the uh, era of mass immigration uh, has meant that that's just not the case, and we've seen how failing states can breed plots that go right over here. And, you know, messages transcend the world instantly. So it's a global world, and we have to do that. I would point out, um, prior to the 1950s, uh, prior, prior to the attack on Harry Truman by Puerto Rican terrorists, you could walk across the porch of the White House. The White House wasn't fenced off. And, uh, you know, we've seen a ratcheting up in response to threats. The vice president lived in an apartment until Gerald Ford. Uh, there was no official vice presidential. Uh, residents. So uh, security is just something that increases and it's a way of life. Um, and it's not always due to this specific threat, but uh, it, it's due to a threat and it's, it's just the way we have to be. We have to be engaged. We have to realize that there's a diffuse threat. Um, the forces of globalization, which seem to be putting people who are not highly trained out of work, will increase the pool of disaffected people. Right now, we're concerned with those who are part of that pool of disaffected people who turn to an Islamist pattern um, of violence. But prior to 9-11, uh, the main focus of terrorism was right-wing people blowing up abortion clinics and uh, setting up bombs in the Olympic Park. And it was the black block of anarchists that disrupted the Seattle uh, world trade thing. So there's a bigger sociological issue at play. It's global. It's bigger than the Middle East. It's bigger than the Arab world. That's the near one. The whole world has changed, and we have to change it, of course, with it. I'm sorry, that's not a very pleasant message, but you know, neither is male pattern baldness. <laughs> <laughs> How might one best proceed to manage counterterrorism efforts effectively at a time of great power rivalry? And when one talks about allies, uh, the implication of the inference has been uh, sort of Western European allies and uh, or uh, Arab, uh, Islamic world allies. Uh, but if whoever asked that question can uh, try to respond to it in terms of France, Great Britain, Russia, China, they have vetoes on the Security Council just as do we. Um, yeah, I'll take a step. Um, so very few countries have uh, managed not to, sorry, um, have not been impacted by uh, terrorism in one form or another. Um, and that has resulted in a, a fair amount of cooperation across the board. There are very, very few countries that, like I said, haven't been impacted. And uh, there's only really a handful of countries that have shown any reluctance or resistance to cooperate. I mean, the one country, as Nawaf uh, stressed during his remarks, that really stands out and seems to be more of a, a, a problem than a part of the solution, certainly in the, in the broader 
uh, Middle East is Iran because Iran has continued to, as a matter of policy, to support various militant and terrorist groups and terrorist operations. Uh, it has, and, and that support has been one of the main sources of instability in the region. But um, other than that, I mean, there, there is a broad consensus in the international community that, especially again among countries that have been impacted, that this is a global problem. It needs global solutions. And the more cooperation, uh, the better. You cannot close off your borders and um, you know kick kick people out, um, as, as David believe said. So. Uh, there is there is a consensus I think that this is uh, this is a serious threat that it will continue for the foreseeable future, um, but there are also a number. Uh, fortunately, I think for everybody, there's only a handful of these state sponsors of terrorism. Uh, Iran is a primary example. Uh, the uh, regime of Bashar al-Assad is the other one. Um, so they're they're the minority, and I think we uh, we're all thankful for that. Yes, and I will. Yeah, no, I think uh, in the in time of great power rivalry, I think that this is a chance for the United Nations to step up and, and play a role in, in, in using its convening power. And uh, we, we see that happening right now. We have the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism, and it's going to host one of the uh, a summit later on this summer, the uh, first of its kind. It's the heads of all intelligence agencies around the world coming together to talk about solutions and figuring out ways to work together through the UN platform and, and, and finding ways to collaborate that had not happened in the past. All right. Thank you. Two responses on this. Uh, here comes one about money. Uh, all of this costs money, and there is an overall atmosphere of uh, funds being cut back for lots of things, um, some areas uh, increased, uh, as we know. Um, but whereas maybe 15 years ago, a young person studying at any of the international relations programs in this city would aspire to uh, take the foreign service exam and be a diplomat, um, that looks far less promising these days. Uh, up until recent weeks, and maybe Chris, uh, you can correct me on this, some seven out of the top key uh, positions in the Department of State even one year after the inauguration remain unfulfilled by uh, permanent uh, positions there. Well, if it's not seven out of nine, then uh, several key ones uh, out of nine. And you work with uh, your allies through diplomats, not through fiat or unilateral uh, actions there. And uh, diplomats have to be well-trained, skilled, and uh, laced with a degree of empathy, too. Um, so what are the implications of this, where a young person now would perhaps say, I got it all wrong. Um, I should think of a career in homeland security instead. Oh, well. <laughs> Well, I was, I was the Defense Department's liaison in the Department of Homeland Security for three years, and I would, I would advise that guy to think carefully. But, um, uh, <laughs> um, it, there is no doubt the, the strongest, strongest backers of non-military measures to counter violent extremism in the United States government are found in the Department of Defense. Uh, let me dispel a common narrative. There is an idea 
that when Donald Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense, he was uh, parochial, and it was my way or the highway, and he didn't get the big picture. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. He obligated $250 million worth of his budget to be transferred to the State Department to set up the Coordinator for Stabilization and Reconstruction. He, he did that on his own. I, I was the action officer on it, and it was the easiest discussion I've ever had with him. Uh, it was not hard to sell it all. He got the big picture. Now, the State Department, on the other hand, minimized the organization. Now it's almost completely irrelevant. Um, and in every organization, there is a point at which you have to ask yourself, um, how much of this organization is engaged in its core mission versus how much of it is engaged in writing memos to each other? I don't know if we're at the right position here of starving the beast, but I can tell you that one of the old jokes we used to have when I was in the Pentagon was we used to define an interagency meeting as a meeting held in the old executive office building chaired by the National Security Council at which all the security agencies of the U.S. government are present and watch two bureaus of the State Department argue with each other. So it is quite possible that there's room for economy there. I'm not sure if we've struck the balance right. But uh, uh, I, I think that it is possible to make too much out of this. And uh, the system is working. And I have never, I'm only 54 years old, I have never heard of a bureaucracy that has said, yeah, we've got too much uh, uh, people here, and uh, our guys are not working hard enough. I have never heard of that. But, you know, presumably i got another 30 years to live, so I'll find somebody who says that. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's all I need. Uh, you do have another 30 years. Um, here's a tough one, uh, and I haven't seen the media come at this. Maybe I just haven't seen it, uh, but it's out there. How might one best approach addressing a terrorism problem that could morph into, be surmounted, Shia divide, or uh, Alawi uh, Shia divide, or Zaydia uh, Sunni divide, or uh, Coptic Christian uh, Islamic divide, as for war. Uh, the list would be longer than that. Um, the two of you come from a country where this is uh, pointedly an issue. It's a touchy one, too. And if you want to punt uh, to non-Saudi Arabians, uh, we'd understand that. Um, do you want to punt or take a stab at it? No, I'll, I'll take a stab. I'm not a big believer in punter being a neo Jets fan. So, I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they love to punt, so it's uh, excuse the pun there. Um, so I think there's... Uh, Certainly, any discussions about uh, religion and, and the sectarian divides is always, uh, you know, it's, it's controversial. But there's also, I think there's a tendency, and I, I don't mean to, to uh, single out the media, but I've been, I found it a little disheartening uh, that there are a number of media outlets that have maybe found it a little too tempting, a little too easy to portray a number of um, conflicts in the region strictly through sectarian lenses. The first, the primary 
uh, conflict that comes to mind is, is the conflict in Yemen. Uh, and I believe we do have at least uh, one uh, representative from the embassy of uh, Yemen here, and I, I hope that uh, maybe he might have a chance to uh, uh, to comment on that. But the, um, the simplification of the conflict in Yemen is simply some sort of a, a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and, and, and Iran. Is, it really misses the picture. I mean, at the heart of it, uh, it's a civil war. It's, in some ways, I think, a continuation of um, long, um, you know, long-existing uh, economic and, and uh, social issues, political um, issues. And um, so to, to simplify everything simply, and, and this includes, this also applies to the wider uh, rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, Saudi Arabia does not object to Iran because it's a Shia majority. It objects to Iran because of its foreign policy. Um, Iran, like I said earlier, has, does have this long uh, legacy, this long track record of supporting militant groups in a number of re uh, countries in the region. It has done it in Lebanon. It has done it in Iraq. It is doing it uh, again in Yemen. That's the root of the, uh, uh, of the problem. Um, but again, going back to, to Yemen, I have heard this from Yemeni uh, officials, analysts, and, and scholars, one of whom I believe was at, uh, on the hill at some point, who uh, it, was, it was an event about, about the conflict in Yemen, and, and this gentleman was almost screaming at the top of his lungs saying, do not portray this as a, as a sectarian uh, issue. We do not have a history of, uh, of a sectarian divide uh, in Yemen. Um, you know, we uh, Yemenis for years have always even prayed at the same mosque, even though they might uh, technically belong to different sects. Uh, this, this is uh, there are many different issues, political issues at play. It is more complicated. You are doing everybody a disservice by by strictly or simplifying it as, as a sectarian divide. And I think, like I said, this applies also to um, to the issue with Iran, to uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, rivalry with Iran. Um, sectarianism, I think, is a factor, and unfortunately, it does become a factor. Certainly, it has even in Yemen, but it certainly was a factor in Syria and Iraq. Uh, but these are much more complicated um, uh, conflicts, and uh, sectarianism is, is often a small part of a, a bigger, more complex uh, picture. Thank you, Farhad. Uh, to add to the complexity of that, and uh, people would think it's uh, ironic. Uh, but throughout the civil war in Yemen from 1972, officially to 1970, but the key fighting stopped in 1967 when Egypt's armed forces were routed. Uh, Saudi Arabia took the side of the Shia uh, in that conflict uh, for five years, uh, actually, and um, eight years officially. Uh, in Lebanon for 15 years, close to 130,000 or more, so 150,000 were killed. And uh, the Taif um, conference was called, and Saudi Arabia had a diplomatic trick up its sleeve. It invited all the last remaining living members of Lebanon's parliament to um, come to uh, Taif. To um, uh, get through this problem, and once there, the ground rules from Prince Saud, the foreign minister, were: you're not leaving <clears throat> until this is solved. So um, lock the doors. Uh, you're not getting out of here. Um, 
tongue-in-cheek here, but it was Saudi Arabia that pushed for reforming the ground rules, political regulations, and mere and moments of propitiousness politically in Lebanon by expanding Shia power and influence, not contracting it. Saudi Arabia was at the tip of the spear on that one. And then before um, 1979, when the Shah hit the fan, uh, the relationship between um, Saudi Arabia and Iran, the leader of Shia uh, governments, uh, was strategically and geopolitically strong. Uh, so uh, the strategic issues uh, can come in at Trump, the sectarian ones, and the violent ones, uh, likewise. And one can throw in for good measure uh, tribalism, not just sectarianism and uh, allusions to Yemen in particular in the past to Oman, but also to um, Iraq, the Jabur, and, and others. So these isms, uh, we've gone beyond the 60s of nationalism and socialism, uh, and even um, a reference to communism for Robert Malley uh, there, and Khaled uh, Bakdash in Syria. Uh, the uh, question of how can one rationalize or assess um, the Trump administration perceived to be abandoning its strategic allies in combating terrorism such as Egypt, such as Pakistan, uh, by cutting assistance to them while they, not the United States, or in the front lines in fighting terrorism. Anyone? I'll take a whack at that. Uh, uh, Dave DeRose will take could, a whack at that. If I could follow Broadway Fahad. Um, <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's two issues uh, historically. Um, this is, well, with Pakistan since 9-11, with Egypt really since Camp David, <laughs> The question with Pakistan is how how much are they uh, really allied with us or are they playing a double game? The Pakistanis uh, point to the huge number of casualties they've had. Um, critics of Pakistan point to the existence of safe havens in Pakistan, the relatively ungoverned nature of it. Um, there is a lot of frustration within the government, um, and it seems as though um, uh, a key point for us was uh, after the assassination of Benazir Bhutto, um, which uh, the Pakistani government attributed to the Ayatollah Massoud clan operating in the northwest frontier province. We uh, took out Ayatollah Massoud. Well, he was seen to be the last person operating the northwest frontier province of the tribal areas who was a direct threat to the Pakistani government for some time. And um, it was kind of felt that the Pakistanis had viewed that as our problem. Viewed that the Pakistani government, you know, the deep state, which is beyond the rule of the government, there are elements within the Pakistani deep state infrastructure who want to keep Afghanistan unstable because they see it as strategic death. This has always been in the background, it's always been frustrating. And so it shouldn't be surprising that in a 17 or well, 15 year history of engagement with Pakistan, that 
having tried engagement, having tried to get money, that sooner or later somebody say, okay, let's try the other approach <laughs> and do it. That shouldn't be a surprise for, for any student of history. I don't think it'll be lasting because I think the geography is there, and I truly believe in my heart of hearts that Pakistan's national interests and America's natural interests are similar. And um, I think that the, um, uh, the key issue that crystallized that was the attack on the boys' school in Peshawar. Um, that school trained sons of military officers. It struck at the heart of the Pakistani elite. So um, I, I think this will be a hiccup. It may last for six months or whatever. But um, I think that you know perhaps in the broad, uh, the broad sweep of history, it's necessary as a um, uh, basically to ensure we've exhausted all options. <laughs> and and if, if for no other reason to say, okay, we tried that once, it didn't work, we weren't, we're not going to try it again. Egypt, the issue is different. Um, the United States views this relationship with Egypt, I think, in the post-Camp David Accord and the provision of security assistance as a sort of strategic partnership. And I think that the Egyptians view it as a transactional relationship, whereas they get all this stuff in exchange for having um, made peace with Israel and for providing us with the overflight rights and access to the Suez Canal. And there's a fundamental misunderstanding there. And I've got to say that um, I have never met any American security official who really has a good knowledge of what Egypt plans to do with all the military equipment they have. Um, the challenges that Egypt plays are really policing challenges. Uh, three months ago, an Egyptian police convoy was ambushed in the Western Desert. Fifty-eight Egyptian policemen were killed. And this is not in the Sinai. This is an area that was thought to be relatively under control of the Egyptian government. They lost 58 people. The United States lost 35 people invading Panama. You know, I mean, so so the amount of bloodshed is insane. But um, you see a couple of things. First off, you see uh, no outside observer thinks that the Egyptian government is effective in providing security, goods, and services. Very few people think the Egyptian government counterinsurgency um, uh, strategy is likely to meet with success. And I've gone on record as saying that the most recent uh, directive from uh, my war college classmate, President El Sisi, is uh, liable to be counterproductive. So um, it's it's not so much perfidity, which is suspected in Pakistan, as just inefficiency, and that that uh, that drives us around the bend. So uh, hopefully, uh, uh, better days are coming. Hopefully, we'll see the light. Thank you for that. And one regarding uh, Israel, uh, you. You made reference to Egypt's um, strategic um, and geographic um, great value, uh, access to Suez Canal, overflights, etc. In addition to what is it, one out of four of all Arabs on the planet is an Egyptian. Uh, and no small statistic uh, there. And the only time that the Suez Canal has been denied the United States and everybody else has not been by Egypt but by Israel and its attack in 1956 a week before the presidential election by the way in terms of timing in the moment being propitious uh, when Eisenhower uh, won uh, Israel teamed up with France and Great Britain and shut it uh, for almost a year or a little more than a year. And then 
the June 67 war where um, Israel invaded Egypt, not the other way around. Um, the canal was again shut and for eight years then. Um, so in terms of um, an Israeli factor in this and its role in counter-terrorism activities and initiatives, uh, how has this changed during the Trump administration and with the new Saudi Arabian regime uh, related to that? How might counterterrorism be more effective if additional resources were focused on hearts and minds campaigns, socioeconomic and political root causes? not necessarily linked to anything involving Israel. But the first one is Saudi Arabia. Uh, how much is one to make of allegations, rumors, uh, declaratory statements that uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel are collaborating, having secret meetings, they share a common enemy, uh, and the enemy of my, of an my enemy is my friend. Um, please comment, uh, no offense, uh, <laughs> uh, Dave, if you're comfortable, no, you won't go there. No, no, well, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, I'll these guys no. Yes, go ahead. Uh, the, the only thing I'll say, I mean, I, I have been asked this question, and, and frankly, I, I simply have not seen uh, any credible evidence to suggest that there is any cooperation. Officials from both governments have denied that they've had any contact or cooperation. So um, whatever is floating out there is, is simply that. It's just un unsubstantiated rumors. Um, overall, though, I think um, Iran's activities and nefarious activities, as the Trump administration has correctly characterized it in the region, uh, threatens almost every country in the region. Saudi Arabia uh, is no exception, and I, I obviously it's, it seems that uh, the same applies to, to Israel. So the fact that they might have shared concerns does not necessarily mean that um, they have shared, shared uh, does, not, does not necessarily translate into active cooperation. I think just about every country in the region has had has long had concerns about Iran and its activities, but that does not necessarily uh, translate into active cooperation on any front. All right, is one regarding drones and counterterrorism, um, and one can understand the temptation to use them more and more uh, because they are less costly monetarily. And um, in terms of killing uh, Americans, it's not uh, soldiers inflicting their military might on the unwilling, uh, but a gadget. Um, uh, the result of someone pressing a button, perhaps, figuratively speaking, in Nevada. Uh, secondly, for those reasons, it's uh, more popular domestically. Uh, because uh, fewer Americans uh, being killed. Um, in the last year, or even at this year already, one month, uh, from 38 people killed in Yemen by drones, the number's up to more than 90. Uh, 
So it's one every other day. And if you uh, stretch that out to a full year, you're talking about a five-fold increase of Americans killing Yemenis uh, use of drones. One of the two of you take a whack at that drones. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure what particularly the the, the how question there is, but I, mean, I would say how does the, it figure into counterterrorism? Yeah, so the uh, the Trump administration has been open about um, what it deems a more aggressive uh, use of both uh, sort of direct action ground raids and uh, and counterterrorism strikes. Um, you know that uh, most clearly evidenced. Uh, you know, CENTCOM put out a, a sort of year in review, 2017, about Yemen. Uh, I think detailing more than 120 uh, combined either raids or, or such strikes. Um, so if there was a component, of, you know, I think Dave described as somewhat a tactical shift um, or operational shift um, that's been borne out over the first year. Um, <coughs> You know, it's uh, it's qualitative effect on um, uh, on the course of uh, sort of broader counterterrorism operations. I think remains to be seen, um, just based on what uh, the administration has said publicly about what it deems to be the effects on removing individual personnel, particularly in Yemen, um, but also in, uh, in Libya um, from the battlefield. You know, they feel that it's been uh, effective in eliminating uh, the people that it was intended to eliminate. Um, but I think it, it remains to be seen what the broader effect will be. Um, I'd sort of like to turn the question on its head a bit and, and focus some, on something that I think bears more attention. Um, you know, the national security strategy that I mentioned refers to, quote, the test beds of terror, end quote, in Syria and Iraq. Um, and if we look closely at that, uh, what we've seen uh, is that Dash in particular uh, has developed a quite sophisticated use of drones in its own right uh, on the battlefield uh, as anti-personnel uh, uh, weapons, as surveillance weapons. Uh, and there's great concern, uh, I think broadly shared, that that particular technology and expertise will become distributed. Um, and so while we're used to having conversations about the relative merits, uh, pros and cons, costs and benefits of uh, the U.S. use of unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, I expect that the conversations about counterterrorism policy this year and moving ahead may focus more on um, uh, extremist actors' use uh, of those uh, technologies, and that creates a whole panoply of, uh, of new challenges for the United States and its partner. Dave. In, in agreement, four, four big points. First off, the big drone news is not U.S., it's uh, Syrian rebels against Russian bases in Syria. Uh, and there's two innovations of that. The first one is you have what looked to be, it looks to me like it's a locally manufactured weapon by a non-state actor that has what seem to be um, modified 60-millimeter mortar shells, which I think every five-year-old in Syria has one, dropped off a commercial drone, deployed in large numbers to swarm the base, uh, the bases, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, and I think that eventually that will overwhelm um, uh, an unadaptive enemy. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, not all attacks that are reported in the media, particularly in Yemen, as drone strikes, are drone strikes. And there's something about drones that people have a visceral thing because they think it's unfair, unequal, like like we should have, you know, we should send Hector out to fight Achilles and solve our things that way. But 
uh, you know, people say, you know, student groups that I speak to say, you know, oh, you know, drone strikes. And I say, well, would you feel different if it were a manned aircraft? And for some reason, they do. But um, I'll just point out that um, do some research before you attribute something as a drone strike because they're not there. The third thing is everybody in the national security infrastructure is very aware of the fundamental problem of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism when it comes to kinetic action, which is does the value of eliminating the target, of killing the person you're going to kill, how does that con how does that balance off with how many people are you going to irritate for having done it? And uh, the failure that I always keep in mind was in 2010 when there was somebody that uh, I think most people were convinced was an Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula thing, who was also the deputy governor of Mara province and was killed by a drone strike. And that led to uprising in Mara province because he was the son of a very prominent family. So, so this is, these are not decisions that are made in a cavalier fashion. There is a, a deliberate, legitimate targeting process, and there are instances where a target is clearly identified, and for reasons such as potential collateral damage, what's done out. It's not open season. It's not free fire. Um, mistakes are made, of course, because war is, is conducted by humans, but it's not there. And then the third point, the fourth point I want to make is that an increase in action in places of Yemen may not be due to a philosophical shift, but rather the fact that the collapse of the Yemeni state means that we don't have to worry about undermining Ali Abdullah Saleh's government uh, with that. that. Basically, in places like Yemen, Somalia, and uh, Libya, where the state has effectively collapsed, um, we don't have a local partner, a local political consideration restrained on our action. And so the local conditions, rather than a strategic policy shift, may have dictated that. And I would also, and this is often forgotten, drone strikes in Pakistan increased when Barack Obama took office versus George W. Bush. So uh, for many of the same reasons, there's, this is not necessarily a Trump thing. So, uh, thank you. Um, spinning off of that one, um, with regard to the statements in the National Security Strategy draft, <clears throat> wanting to work uh, more with allies, through allies, and asking uh, more of allies, uh, particularly in terms of financial contributions, but geopolitical ones as well. Uh, some of us are old enough or young enough to uh, recall that during the long Iran-Iraq war from 1980 to 1988, um, many in Congress said, my goodness, we're flying the wings off of air aircraft in, uh, in this region. Um, why can't we get our allies to do more? And usually the response was, uh, uh, we'd be happy to sit down and have a conversation to explore the possibilities of greater cooperation with you. Um, but if we do that, uh, to use your phrase, this means we'll have skin in the game. And uh, with us uh, contributing more, we want to have greater influence in terms of targeting, in terms of munitions, in terms of this, that, and the other. Uh, in terms of analysis and assessments and actions and attitudes. And uh, our response was, no, wait a minute, no, we don't want that. We want to retain control ourselves. If we start vitiating who has control and influence, um, 
we'll rue the day. So uh, we backed away, and with that backing away, they backed away. Uh, so one of the implications this time around, uh, where we have traditionally relied on our European allies, not our East Asian, South Asian, African, Latin American uh, allies uh, here, uh, where there is a resistance on one hand and an engagement um, on another. Uh, with Is it Article 5 in the North Atlantic Treaty uh, where all of the signatories are obligated to come to the defense of all the others? An attack on one is an attack on all. And we've said, well, we like to revisit that. Uh, what does that say in terms of implications when you say, hey, come on, we want you to do more. When we're sending a signal up, we intend to do less. Yes. Well, well, I, I think uh, in terms of cooperating with Arab allies, I think uh, what President Trump has done in this administration has done in particular is that they've, uh, they've listened and, uh, and have allowed for a more collaborative process where in the past, and specifically during uh, President Obama's time, there was the uh, PVE agenda, the Prevention of Violent Extremism agenda that was uh, sort of shoved into uh, the scope of, of the uh, international uh, arena in the United Nations and, we, and and everybody had to adopt this plan called the Secretary General's Plan on Prevention of Violent Extremism, which rubbed a lot of countries the wrong way because it didn't take into account what um, a lot of traditional allies considered factors in, into uh, violent extremism. And so uh, there, there's a real... Uh, element of, of, of listening to others uh, considerations when it comes to what contributes to violent extremism in their mind and, and taking that into account uh, with this administration uh, and so I feel that that is a better grounds for cooperation than in the past okay Chris I would just say uh, you know, the, the diplomatic challenges of coordination and alignment of interests are, are obvious and apparent um, across the region between the United States um, and those are those are going to be enduring and, and to a certain extent have always been there. What I think it, it bears more, uh, that is actually sort of more tangible and achievable um, is a greater focus on um, the, the development of particular military skill sets. Um, if the United States is indeed not just asking more uh, of its partners in the region, but in fact investing funds and facilitating the transfer of certain technologies and weaponries, uh, weaponry to uh, partners in the region. Um, it, it not only behooves, but is incumbent on the United States to invest in, in fully developing the capacity of those partners to use those technologies responsibly. Um, we've seen uh, a lot of discussion of this, uh, particularly in the context uh, of the coalition operation in Yemen. Um, and I don't want to open that necessarily for a broader discussion, but I think um, what we've seen more recently rhetorically from the United States, um, uh, and I think from Saudi partners as well, is a renewed commitment to improving uh, the Saudi capacity to, uh, and the coalition's broader capacity uh, to do just that. Um, and 
I guess my personal hope and expectation is that um, moving forward there would be more of that rather than less. Um, and that's uh, across all the lanes uh, uh, of the, the varying sort of counterterrorism and military operations, be it air-to-ground operations in that case, um, but the use of special forces, the development of uh, intelligence, uh, uh, logistics, uh, and maintenance all along the line. If the United States is truly going to um, uh, take this opportunity to uh, invest and lean on regional partners, um, then that connective tissue uh, needs to be developed even as we're working together to degrade the connective tissue of our adversaries. And this last question is a multifaceted one, an omnibus one, as we draw to a close here. Now, think of yourself going through a cafeteria, uh, speakers, and choose whichever one's uh, plural uh, you care to address, uh, and, and, and even shorter responses uh, than you've uh, commendably done so far. Uh, on balance, how can one assess whether we are eliminating or generating more terrorists? What's the score? Okay. Uh, how does one propose to deal effectively with areas liberated from Daesh? Uh, going to leave a vacuum in there, uh, laid waste, or um, do something? And do something seems to be ruled out in terms of nation building. context, background, and perspective on how Al-Qaeda would seem to be uh, on a roll and a run and rear gear uh, has bounced back uh, to inspiring and gaining new recruits, uh, not just regionally, but in the West and elsewhere. Ponder that, okay? Um, thirdly, uh, or fourthly, uh, Jaster uh, seems to have fallen off the radar screen, but this is one where uh, individuals believe they are encouraged if they were somehow damaged or their loved ones harmed in the September the 11th attacks in New York and Washington and the crash in Pennsylvania. Um, mightn't they sue the government? from which um, the largest number of the terrorists came. Uh, does that figure in here at all? Is that dropped off the radar screen? And if it's dropped off the policymakers' screen, it's probably hardly dropped off the people who brought this up and lobbied to have it uh, uh, passed into quasi-legislation thus far. And uh, last, no, next to the last, um, in terms of what this administration is doing or not doing, that the previous administration was doing and not doing, one has to do with human rights, another has to do with civil rights, a third with regard to gender rights, and uh, a fourth with regard to um, uh, narrowing the gap uh, regarding the grievances between rulers and rural governors and governed. Uh, sovereigns and uh, subjects uh, there. Uh, a lot of ink is spilled in the media about uh, whether a country's democratic or not, uh, the implication being like we'd like to see. 
even though twice in the last 17 years, in our system, the person who got the most votes lost, uh, and uh, lost in the electoral kindergarten uh, there. And the conclusion on that one, I think we have insight from William R. Polk, who's still around, I believe it is 90s now, but was a member of uh, John F. Kennedy's Policy Planning Council, and uh, under Johnson says, well, and he said on this American national interest, it, it doesn't uh, compare at all with strategic interests, economic interests, political interests, commercial interests, and defense interests. It's beneath all of those, the little day of democratization and these others. What they are at the end of the day, he said, they are psychologically indulgable, but politically expendable. And uh, I think there's profundity in, in that. And the last question is with Russia supporting Iran and later Syria is not something extending, is this not an extension of the Cold War uh, with Russia and this time around engaging the West in the Middle East and uh, creating divisions between the Europeans and the United States like all the others these are great questions. Have any of them? Sure, I'll, I'll tackle the, the first one you asked. Are, are we winning or are we creating more or eliminating more terrorists? And if you look at the stats, uh, in 2017, uh, it was the lowest amount of suicide attacks since 2013, and, and the truck's been trending downwards. But surprisingly, uh, you see an increase in, in female participation in, in these attacks. Uh, 348 attacks in 23 countries in 2017. Uh, ISIS was responsible for 63% of those. Um, but you also see uh, see it down in Libya and in other areas, and, and that could be attributable to uh, their losses in, in, in Iraq and, and Syria. Um, but you also see a shift towards different methods uh, of, of attack. Uh, uh, Professor DeRoche put on this slide about the... the uh, the, the vehicle, uh, and so it's very hard to assess, but just looking at the numbers, it, it's trending downwards, and, and it's looking like we're winning the battle, but you also have to make sure that environments aren't right for groups like this to pop up again, and, and so again, the uh, the emphasis on the technological and digital battle and, and making sure that they're not able to rally and, 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 and gather human resources through the internet is key, and so, uh, but the numbers are trending downwards, so. Mr. DeRoche. Oh. Okay. Any of Well, um, oh, keep with your cafeteria metaphor, I feel like John Belushi in Animal House going through, so let me take that jello and uh, I'll go with Al-Qaeda new recruits. I think Al-Qaeda as a force, uh, as an institutional force is primarily spent. Uh, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. The first one is um, the brand was superseded. It used to be the global voice of protest, and Daesh took that over. This 
And I think the reason for that, going back to Ronald Reagan personnel as policy, um, uh, they had a charismatic leader who was well-funded, who had access to that. Now they've got an Egyptian dissident. And when you look at the main Al-Qaeda uh, structure, it's Egyptian Islamic Jihad, basically. Al-Qaeda today is a product of Hosni Mubarak's misguided uh, law enforcement policy. Um, and the franchises of Al-Qaeda, uh, of course, the Syrian franchise completely renounced them and moved on. Um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, I would argue, has always been sui generis uh, and really doesn't owe anything to main Al-Qaeda. It conducted attacks on the near enemy in defiance of, you know, it, 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 it's just, it's a spent force. So I think, I think that's yesterday's news and we're not going to see much about it. Um, let me take another crack at the JASTA Act just because I, you had to sit through my paper on it at Cambridge this summer. Um, JASTA, I think, is kind of like patent litigation. I don't think it's designed to actually make it to court. I think it's designed to shake down the entities that uh, would be subject to JASTA and force them to make a decision. Do I spend this much money to go to court where I might win, but my lawyer's fees are sunk, or do I just make a payment for that? And unfortunately, what we see, so, so this isn't a Middle East policy thing, this is domestic litigation. When you look at laws that are passed for a specific purpose, they soon bleed out. So in the 70s, the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organization, RICO, which had trouble damages and stuff, that was designed to be used against you know, the, the leaders of the mafia. Well, by the 80s, uh, any magazine that was going to run a story about Richard Gere's uh, thing got a letter from a lawyer that mentioned the RICO Act. And RICO is now used in divorce cases. It's bled over. And I've said, uh, I've said in writing that um, Eventually, something like Rachel Corey, or you know, that Israel will be hit with one of these JASTA cases, and so I think that it will either become so diffuse that it has something, or it will be seen as being irrelevant and will just not be used. And, and uh, I think that the way the final formulation of JASTA was done, nobody wanted to oppose it publicly, but I think the litigation is so narrowly tailored that I think the effect is going to be less than we thought. Chris, sure. Uh, just an observation on uh, a few of these on the score front. Um, I think you know, if we had Brett McGurk standing here, he'd go through his map and say, you know, 90,000 kilometers have been taken back. You know, this many people taken off the battlefield. Um, the production of uh, of tweets and other magazines is down. All those things are true. Um, but I think um, potentially looking forward, uh, a more relevant score sheet to look at uh, is the unprecedented. Uh, human toll that needs to be taken into account uh, from this period of 2013 to 2017. Um, you've got uh, 11.5 million Syrians all, uh, either internally displaced or externally displaced as refugees, 13.1 million in need of humanitarian assistance. In Yemen, 3 million IDPs, 18 million uh, food insecure. Uh, in Iraq, 3 million IDPs, uh, 11 million in need. Somalia, six, um, we are at a moment of uh, unprecedented, since the end of the Second World War, uh, humanitarian suffering, uh, many uh, cases of overlap with our principal theaters of counterterrorism interest. Um, and if um, the uh, clear and demonstrable counterterrorism and military gains of the last four years are to be sustained, um, renewed attention needs to be uh, focused empathetically and pragmatically. Uh, on the, the human and societal challenges uh, in these areas. And that means uh, from the United States and its partners, uh, an emphasis on um, contributions to stabilization, private sector engagement, 
uh, diplomatic in, uh, engagement in support uh, of conflict mitigation uh, and conflict resolution uh, rather than conflict extension. Um, in terms of um, you know uh, rights and, uh, and, and dignity, uh, I think um, uh, what's become clear is that uh, in the wake of the, the Arab Spring, uh, the Karama cry uh, um, has become diluted with uh, um, a focus on, uh, and you know, rightly so, on security challenges in many of these places. Um, but the cry remains, um, and I think uh, the individual societies of the region and the United States as a principal partner needs to take those, uh, that cry seriously uh, and find individual legitimate ways, uh, case by case, uh, for accommodating it, uh, again, if we are to maintain and sustain uh, the clear counterterrorism and military gains that we've made over the last four years. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, uh, right. So, uh, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I, I tend to take a, an optimistic uh, assessment of uh, where things stand. I think 2017 was an important year. I think maybe the international community did turn a bit of a corner in rolling back uh, uh, ISIS and taking back most of the territory that it was able to control in both uh, Syria and Iraq. But I think going forward, um, I think it's very important to uh, to observe what happens in Syria. I, I've argued in the past, in fact, as early as January 2012, that Syria had the potential to be a much worse crisis than uh, Afghanistan was in the 1980s as a breeding ground for uh, uh, militants. Um, it had a different history. It had a longer history as, as a Muslim country. Uh, where it's located, uh, it was certainly much closer. Uh, for Arab fighters um, to, to, to get to. They, they knew the language, they had uh, contact. So my, my fear was, and, and I guess this is January uh, 2012, way before anyone had heard of ISIS, um, that it would become a breeding ground for, um, for terrorists, and unfortunately that's exactly what, it, what happened. I think Syria presented, uh, kind of gave rebirth. What I, what I wrote in the piece that it would potentially allow uh, Al-Qaeda to, uh, to, to research, and it's quite foreseen the, the formation of ISIS, but uh, it was close enough in the sense that there was a narrative that was constructed that was, um, that was able to convince thousands of young uh, uh, Muslim men and, and some women to, uh, to buy into this idea that there's a, a war against them taking place uh, in Syria, and they had a, an obligation to uh, uh, to fight it. It was uh, it wasn't a surprise uh, to me, and maybe not to others, that uh, that's that's what happened. It's it's also not a coincidence that most of the fighters, foreign fighters, went to uh, to Syria, not not so much uh, Iraq, and it's also not a coincidence that uh, ISIS proclaimed uh, Raqqa as its capital. Uh, so Syria has been a problem; it continues to be a problem. The violence has uh, dissipated a little uh, in the past few weeks, but there's still uh, an enormous uh, amount of destruction and suffering, as, as Chris just pointed out. What happens there, I think, um, uh, will be one of the keys to, to what happens to uh, terrorist movements uh, going forward. Thank you. Fine.